I've had a few different experiences uh, kind of being exposed to other faiths, other religions. One of the earliest ones was when I was in middle school. I actually went to middle school with quite a few uh, Jewish kids. And so as they turned 13, I went to a number of bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs. And uh, the one that really stands out to me was my buddy, Zach Zucker. Uh, He was on my uh, baseball team and we went to school together. And I remember actually the summer before his bar mitzvah, uh, traveling to Nebraska for baseball tournaments and he was like reciting the Hebrew prayers uh, in the car as he was preparing for his bar mitzvah. And so it was this huge big deal, we were all excited. He didn't know what any of those prayers meant but he had memorized the Hebrew (laughs) and he could do it. And so we got invited to his his bar mitzvah and we were like, man, this is awesome. And so uh, we showed up, I think at like 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That's when the, the synagogue service began that he uh, was part of. And so we went to this and it was, um, we were like almost for sure the only Gentiles there. <laughs> and we were just about the only people there. Like there were just not very many people. And it was in a big room. It was this big synagogue with lots of space. And we got there at eight and there's like maybe a dozen to two dozen other people. And we're kind of looking around and we're like, are we, is this the right day? Is this the right time? Because we've been hearing about the bar mitzvah. We've been seeing Zach practice. We've been doing all this stuff. We're going, this is like, this, we know this is like a huge deal. And right, the party's going to be amazing. There's no one here. And then the service starts and it's all in Hebrew. Not helpful, right? I don't speak Hebrew, uh, didn't then either. And uh, so the first hour goes by and there's lots of reading and there's lots of chanting and we get the impression that this is very important and very serious and uh, very religious, but no one's there. (laughs) And then around uh, like an hour into the service, Zach and his whole family and pretty much everyone else shows up. And so we didn't know, like, well, what happened? Like, no one ever explained to us, like, oh, yeah, no one really gets there for the first hour. So we're sitting there in the back for the first hour like a bunch of idiots while everyone else shows up an hour into it. And then the service starts, and the service, once they got there, it went for, like, another two hours. Um, And uh, I remember uh, then getting invited to, that was, I think, the first bar mitzvah I I went to. And then, uh, because his his congregation was, you know, a bit more kind of religiously conservative. Then I got invited uh, to a bat mitzvah of a a female classmate of mine, and it was at a different synagogue, and I was like, oh gosh, I'm definitely not getting there right on time. And it was like a 45-minute service in English, and I was like, I like this place better. (laughs) Um, But I just remember being so confused, because I didn't really know how it worked. I didn't know kind of how it was all supposed to function. Then I remember um, having the experience, I had this experience in India, I've had this experience in Turkey, of visiting a mosque. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to go to a mosque and to be there on a Friday when they're praying and to kind of go through some of the customs. Obviously, as a non-Muslim, there's not a lot that you're going to do other than just sort of watch, but you take off your shoes and there's this entrance for the men and this entrance for the women and there's just all this different stuff that you really don't understand, right? So I've been to a number of like confusing religious experiences. I've also been to Major League Baseball games, which are a kind of religious experience for some of us. But if you're new to baseball, right, you go to a baseball game and this is like super confusing, right? Because um, there's like all these numbers on the scoreboard, but you're not sure which one matters, right? And what's an R and what's an H and what's an E, 
right? And, and there's a person that throws out a pitch before the first game and everyone gets excited, but it's like a little kid and you're like, what is this about, right? And then you're watching this game and all of a sudden people just start standing up and doing a wave thing and you're like, what does this mean? Is this important? And then after the, you know, in the middle of the seventh inning, everyone bursts into song <laughs> and stands up. And like, if you've never been to a baseball game, you go like, I don't get it. Right? If, you're, if you're kind of an outsider looking in on any kind of religious experience, whether it be Jewish or Muslim or baseball, you don't get it. And so there's something that I realize that a lot of you who are newer to church and newer to Gateway, you, there's something we do here that everyone who grew up in church, everyone who's been part of our church for a long time, for the most part goes, yeah, 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 don't even notice it. But you notice it and you feel it and you wonder about it. And the question you have is, why do they do so much singing? Why is there so much singing? Like every week, it's like four or five songs, and they're long. And they're not really songs that I hear anywhere else. And yet we do a lot of them, right? And, and it feels like a lot of energy is put into the songs and the lights and the, and the lyrics. And, and there feels like all this energy. And, and yet if you're new to this, you just might not understand why do we do so much singing. And this passage here is going to help answer that question. God's people, the Hebrews and then Christians, sing. And singing is embedded deeply in what it is to be a follower of Yahweh. And so we sing. And what we're going to see today is kind of why we sing and uh, who we sing for and what that whole thing is kind of all about. So if you're just joining us in this series, we're um, walking through the book of Exodus. What we've said is that Exodus is a book about the God who makes himself known in a world that has long forgotten him. Over the last weeks, we've been looking at how God has defeated the oppressive uh, nation of Egypt that had been holding the Jews enslaved for 400 years. God has delivered them through mighty acts, through the plagues, through the destruction of the firstborn of every family who was not covered under the blood of the Passover lamb. We saw last week how God enabled the waters of the Red Sea to part so that the people of Israel could go through on dry ground while the chariots, the special forces, the elite soldiers of Egypt were drowned in the Red Sea. And after that incredible deliverance, and that Exodus story, that Passover story, that is the salvation story of the Old Testament. And immediately after that, what do the people of Israel do? Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. When you experience deliverance, when you experience rescue, when you experience salvation from God, you sing. That's why we sing. So chapter 15 is a really kind of interesting chapter because really not much happens. It's just this sort of praise break in the middle of this otherwise really interesting narrative. And so we're going to take a few moments and just reflect on what this song teaches us about why we sing. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll dive into the text. Father, thank you so much that you're a God who saves Thank you that you are a God who fights on behalf of your people. Thank you, God, that we are not left alone, that we are not abandoned, but that you pursue us. 
and you redeem us and you rescue us. And so God, I pray that you would fill our hearts today with a song. I pray that this uh, passage and the lessons from it would form us and shape us to be a people who love to sing, who love to sing your praise, regardless of the style, regardless of the form, regardless of the place, that we would be people who love to sing your praise. God, form that in us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this passage shows us three reasons why we as the people of God sing. And the first one is this. We sing because God saves. We sing because God saves. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, then this is just the lyrics of the song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's interesting, just pause there for a moment. Uh, That's how the song's gonna conclude at the end of verse 21. You notice verse one and verse 21 are almost exactly the same. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. It says that again at the end of this section. Verse two. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. All throughout the chapters leading up to this, God has kept telling the people of Israel You will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. And as I do this, you will know that I am the Lord. And when this happens, you will know that I am the Lord. And now look at verse three. They know the Lord. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Who is this God? This is a God who saves. He has become my salvation. You know, um, I have this annoying habit. Uh, I find it not annoying at all, but my uh, wife finds it a little bit annoying, which is that I am always on the lookout for the perfect song for every moment. Any of you like me? Right? And what you're doing is you're bringing life and you're bringing joy. You're bringing thoughtfulness to the world. And the people around you just think you're being annoying. Right? And I'm always looking for the right, right? Like, so we're headed to a baseball game. We're going to listen to baseball songs, right? And, and uh, going to my daughter's cross-country meet, we're listening to Tom Petty running down a dream, right? And chariots of horse, uh, chariots of fire and all this stuff, right? Like, we're, we're, just, we're just always looking for the perfect song. Here's the perfect song for Exodus 15. Another one bites the dust, <laughs> right? That's the perfect song for Exodus 15. Another one bites the dust, by Queen, that would just be perfect. I actually thought like, maybe I'd get the band to just play that, but it's a long, way, it's a long payoff till you get to the, you know, but that's the point. Another one bites the dust, that's what he's saying. This is a song mostly about how God saves through making the Egyptians bite the dust. And this story sets a pattern. As I said, the people of God throughout all of our history are a people who sing. There's an entire book, 150 songs. We call them psalms, but they're songs, they're prayers, most of which were written for music, for the people of God to sing and to celebrate who God is. And so here's the pattern you just see throughout the Bible is that when God acts, the people sing. You see it in Numbers 21 where the people are wandering in the desert and they don't have water and God provides water. And in Numbers 21, there's a song. 
You see it in Judges chapter five. Israel defeats the army of Canaan, and after that incredible victory, there's a song. You see it in 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah, who has been barren, is praying that God would provide a child for her, and in fact, God does, and Samuel is born, and so Hannah sings. Here's one of those psalms, Psalm 40, a prayer of David, a song of David. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Here's what David's saying. David's saying, I was in the pit I was in a hole. I needed rescue. I was stuck. I was despondent. And then God set my feet upon a rock. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction. And therefore, what does it say, verse three? He put a new song in my mouth. When God acts, the people sing. Psalm 40 is an amazing psalm. Even you too, that Irish rock band, did an amazing cover of Psalm 40. Because when God acts... His people sing. Now listen, isn't, isn't Psalm 40, isn't that our story too? Isn't Exodus 15, isn't that our story too? If you're a follower of Jesus, God has overthrown our enemy, hasn't he? God has overthrown the enemy of sin that entangles us, that snares us, that condemns us, that covers us with shame and with fear and with guilt. And in Christ, through his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection, God has thrown sin and death into the sea. We find ourselves stuck in a hole of sin, of discouragement, of pain, of heartbreak, So we try to navigate a fallen world. And God pulls us out of that. And doesn't mean that there's no more pain and there's no more sin and there's no more difficulty in this life. But in the midst of it, he gives us a song. And he shows us that he is our hope, that our feet are on a rock, that while all other ground may be sinking sand, we are on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so we sing. We sing because God saves. Amen. Amen, Steve. Here's the second reason we sing. We sing because God is supreme. We sing because God is supreme. Here's the middle of the song is verse 11. This is really kind of the the pinnacle of this song, verse 11. Here's what it says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now remember this. Remember, the people of Israel, they had kind of just about forgotten about God. Now, there had been some Hebrew midwives who, when they had been instructed to uh, destroy the Hebrew male children in the Nile River, said, no, 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 we fear God, we're not gonna do that. There was some sense that the people of God were were somehow crying out to God in the midst of their oppression and slavery. But they don't know God particularly well. They, They know him kind of at a distance. 
And now they've gotten to know him up close. They've gotten to know him through his acts, through his deeds, through, as it says, his glorious deeds, doing wonders. And their conclusion, having seen how God acts and who God is, is that he's supreme. Who is like you? Oh, Lord, among the gods. Who is like you? What's the answer? Nobody is like him. He is unparalleled. He is exalted. He is beyond. He is holy. He's supreme. So we sing because we have a God who is bigger and better and holier than anything or anyone else. He deserves it. We should exalt him, we should glorify him, we should praise him, we should magnify him. That's what it says in Psalm 69, verse 30. The psalmist says, I will praise the name of God with a song, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Think about this, I'll praise him with a song, I'll magnify him with thanksgiving. Maybe you've heard the word magnify, we should magnify God, we should glorify God. You go, what is that? What does that mean? I think the most helpful illustration to help us think about it comes from a guy named John Piper. And Piper says there's actually two ways to magnify something. Right? Magnify him with thanksgiving. Magnify him with song. How do you magnify something? Well, there's two ways. First, you can magnify something like a microscope. So think about this. When you magnify something like a microscope, what are you doing? You're taking something that is very, very, very small, sometimes so small it's not even visible to the naked human eye, and you're making this very, very, very small thing, as you look through the magnifier, seem really big. And Piper says, if you try to magnify God like that, it's blasphemy. Because God is not small. God is not insignificant. God is not barely noticeable. God is huge and supreme. So we don't magnify God as though he were this little itty bitty thing that we just can't quite see and he's not that big and we gotta make him seem bigger than he is. That's not what this is saying. No, the way we magnify God is not like a microscope, it's like a telescope. Now think about this. How do you magnify with a telescope? You magnify with a telescope by taking something that is huge, right? Stars, planets, galaxies, these are huge. And yet they're so far away that sometimes they seem small. They're not small, they seem small, but they are huge. And so what you do when you magnify with a telescope is you make the star seem the size that it actually is. And that's what we do with God. We have a God who is huge, a God who is mighty, a God who is large, a God who can kind of walk around and carry the universe in his pocket like a nickel. And yet to most people, most of us even, we act like God's really small. He's really far away. He probably can't see you here very well. And so what we do when we sing is we magnify God like a telescope. We make God seem to be as big as he really is. We remind ourselves and we remind others, there is no one like God. 
Worship him, praise him, adore him. What, what, here's, what, here's what we do when we sing. We remind ourselves of the real world. Right, sometimes you might leave here and go, well, back to the real world. No, 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 no. This is the real world where God is supreme, where God is God, and where God has intervened on your behalf to save you and to make you a person with your voice and your life who magnifies God so that others could see how great he really is. We sing because God saves, and we sing because God is supreme, and finally, we sing because God secures our future. You look at the structure of this song in Exodus 15, it's really interesting because uh, through verse 10, it's looking back. It's looking back at what God just did a moment ago. Look at how God threw the horse and the rider into the sea. Look at how God just crushed Egypt. Look at how Egypt bowed up and thought they were all big and mighty, but how they're not. Look back and see how God took care of them. Another one bites the dust, right? That's the first half of the song. But the second half is looking ahead. Looking ahead at not just, not the Egyptians in the past, but the the nations that are to come that God is going to act mightily on behalf of the people of Israel to give them this promised land. Look at what it says in verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the peoples pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, these other nations have heard about what God did. And I love the imagery of verse 16. Uh, they're still as a stone. Right? You ever have a time when you're just terrified of something and you just freeze? This is the nations who have heard about what God did in Egypt. Maybe, maybe they'll just pass by. Maybe Israel won't see us. It's amazing, actually, years and years later when the people finally get to Jericho and they encounter Rahab, the prostitute who spies on behalf of the people of Israel. She tells the people, the the soldiers who come, she says, we've heard about what happened in Egypt. So we sing, not just because of how God saves in the past, not just because of who God is always, but we sing because God secures our future. Our future is secure. It says in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. That's speaking of Jerusalem. That's speaking of this place where God will make his abode, his sanctuary, where God himself will dwell with his people, not just as a monadic, a nomadic people through the wilderness in the tabernacle, which we'll see at the end of Exodus, but where God will dwell with his people permanently. God's past saving actions guarantee his future saving actions actions, which means for the people of God, our future is incredibly bright. Uh, There's a a church in Nashville that I've come to just have an affection for. Their founding pastor uh, um, just actually kind of handed off leadership to the next generation. He's uh, just turned 70. His name's Ray Ortland Jr. 
And this church in Nashville called Emmanuel, they've developed this mantra, which they kind of have, like here, we kind of say all of life is all for Jesus. Well, here's the Emmanuel mantra. Here, Here it is. We've got a picture of the cards they print off. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anyone can get in on this. That's pretty sweet, huh? I mean, wouldn't you like to hand that card to someone and go, hey, why don't you check out my church? Right? That, the very least, they'll, they'll be interested in that. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Why? Because God's a God who saves. God's a God who forgives. God's a God who restores. God's a God who makes new. God's a God who conquers sin and death. My future is incredibly bright. And here's the good news. Anyone can get in on this. This is not just this tiny little exclusive thing for just a few people who figured out the right way to do stuff. No, this is a gospel. This is good news for every nation, tribe, and tongue. I don't know if you noticed. We, we, Seth mentioned it a couple weeks ago. So, so if you weren't here, maybe you missed this. But, but it wasn't just the Jews who got in on the salvation from the Exodus. After experiencing all of those plagues, it says that a mixed multitude left Egypt and went to the Red Sea, which means that there were some Egyptians who woke up to the reality of who God was and spread the blood over their doors and left with the Jews. Anyone can get in on this. We are a God, we are part of a family of a God who saves. We sing because God saves. We sing because God's supreme. We sing because God secures our future. Now this is so key, this is really important. This is why we sing, and this is why I want to invite you, us, as the people of Redemption Gateway, to sing and to sing loud, get this, even when we don't feel like it right now. Not about you, but there's weeks where I don't feel like it. I'm discouraged at my own failure. Disappointed what's gone on in the lives of people around me. I'm burdened by the weight of challenges that people are facing. I look at the brokenness of the world and I think, ah, no, I don't feel like it. But we sing not because we feel like it. We sing because God saves. We sing because God Supreme. We sing because our future is secure. We know his past grace. We trust him for future grace. We trust him to give us the grace we need in the future. And so we sing ourselves and we sing other people into faith. This is one of the amazing things. It says in the book of Ephesians that we are supposed to sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Which means we don't just sing to praise God, we actually sing to invite other people to praise God, right? None of us showed up today with noise-canceling headphones. Some of you have thought about it. But no one showed up with noise-canceling headphones. Why? Because you want to hear other people sing. You need to hear other people sing. This is not just about your private voice. This is about hearing the assembly sing together, singing ourselves into faith where we take the truths that we know and we try to pound them into our hearts, 
We don't sing because we feel like it. We sing because God is supreme and God saves and God secures our future. I love this quote by Pastor Matt Chandler. Here's what he says. He says, what singing is meant to do is integrate the head and the heart. What we're after is a heart moved by what is true. The integration of head and heart, wooing us out of what we know to be true into an experience of that truth. We sing because there's a lot of stuff we know. But listen, we are not just brains on a stick. We are whole embodied people. And we need to experience the truth that God's a God who saves, that God is supreme and that God secures our future. That's why we sing. Isn't it amazing how much emotion can wash over you when you hear certain songs? Isn't it amazing how you can hear a certain song and you can remember where you were at a pivotal moment when you heard it? There is something about music that does that to us. God wants to do that for us, to move what we know into what we experience. And so if these are the reasons for our singing, that we sing because God saves, that we sing because God's supreme, that we sing because God secures our future, if those are the reasons, then we will sing whether we feel like it or not. We will sing whether our voices are good. They're not. Our voices are not particularly good. We'll sing whether the musicians are good. They are. What a gift, all these volunteers who serve on a regular basis to provide a great musical experience and to make it sound good and to make it where we have the lyrics to sing along to. I mean, praise God for that, but, but we don't sing because they're good. We sing because God is. If those are our reasons for singing, we won't be affected by whether the songs or the style or what we prefer. We'll sing because God's worth it. We won't sing because it feels too loud or too quiet. We'll sing because God saves. And we won't sing because we've had a good week. We won't avoid singing because we've had a bad week. We will sing. We will celebrate who God is and what he's done. So I don't know if if some of you kind of clued in on sort of how we've even structured the service today. Normally we have a number of songs before I get up here to preach. Today we just did one. And the reason is we're saving them. (laughs) We're saving them up. And what we thought we would do is not just read about singing and not just talk about singing, we thought we'd sing. Does that sound good? So so we're going to sing a bunch of songs. We're going to sing for a long time. And we're going to do that because God in Christ has saved us. Because Jesus is now supreme, reigning and ruling over the universe, and because Jesus has secured our future where he will make all things new. So in just a moment, uh, John Cronwald's going to come, and he's going to lead us to celebrate communion. We're going to remember how God has saved us. We're going to remember why our future is secure. It's not because we're great. We are complete idiots. But our future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on it. And we're going to remember that, and then we're going to sing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, as much as I do love music, and as much as I thank you for the gift of music, I'm much more thankful for who you are. 
and I'm thankful that we get to sing about you and about how you have saved and about how you reign supreme and about how you have secured our future, that we will dwell with you forever. Oh, that's good news, Lord. Thank you for it. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with song. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.